0: Turn to your Bibles, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're just going to glance at Acts chapter 2. You can also put a marker in Ephesians 2. We have one more week potentially in our series for elders, potential elders, and uh, then we will jump back into our exposition of the book of John, Lord willing. Start in Acts 2. Like I said, we're going to glance at it. We're going to end up in Ephesians 2 uh, and uh, bounce around a little bit. Of all the lessons on eldership and the qualification for elders, if you're new here this morning, this is what we've been doing, is we've been looking at what the Bible says regarding the qualifications for eldership. And uh, elders, pastors, same, same word, same office, uh, same office, I should say. Uh, and so we've been looking at Scripture Number one, to equip men who may aspire to the office of elder, but also to equip the church because it's the congregation's responsibility to identify men who are qualified for eldership. And so this is as much a matter of helping men look to their own hearts and make sure they're qualified if they aspire for the office, but also to equip the congregation to fulfill its responsibilities. And so that's what we've been doing, and we're almost at the end of this series. Uh, well, today, the topic we're going to look at applies especially not just to elders, but to the entire congregation. We're going to see something that ought to characterize the culture of every healthy church. And I hope that we as a congregation can take this to heart and maybe realize maybe we haven't been fulfilling this responsibility as we ought to because it's very clearly laid out in Scripture that this ought to characterize every believer and every healthy church, as we'll see. Well, Acts chapter 2. This is the day of Pentecost, In Acts chapter 2, this is the birth of the church. And during this time, the population of Jerusalem and its surrounding areas would have swelled by many thousands of people. This is, again, the Feast of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. And the time had come for devout Jews to return to the city to offer their thanksgiving for the harvest. That's the purpose of the Feast of Pentecost. Specially baked loaves of bread would be offered, representing the fruit of the crops. They'd wave them before the Lord. And the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 26, that when this feast was uh, first introduced, the Jews were told to say something as they offered this offering to the Lord. And it says this in Deuteronomy 26, that they were to repeat these words. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And so this was an offering to the Lord. Lord, thank you for your blessing. Thank you for the harvest. And now we offer this back to you as a recognition that it all comes from you. That was the purpose. And notice the reference there in Deuteronomy 26 was back to the exodus. And so the Feast of Pentecost was a time to reflect upon God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt and His provision, bringing them into the Promised Land, and then providing all of their needs. That's Pentecost. Well, as the massive crowds comprised of men and women from every nation, it says here in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, every nation under, under heaven uh, were there present. And as they bustled about, they began to hear a commotion here in Acts chapter 2. What was this? Well, 120 of Jesus' disciples, suddenly began loudly praising God for His mighty works. As the crowds approached to hear what this noise was, where's all this coming from? Uh, they, They began listening, like, what language are these people speaking? And they came to realize that these uneducated Galileans were speaking languages which they had never learned before. The astonished crowd marveled there in verse 7 of Acts 2, and said, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? The Lord had gotten their attention. With the rapt attention of the curious crowd, in verse 14, Peter begins to preach. He preached about the life and crucifixion and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ. He preached that the Jews had made a dire mistake in rejecting Jesus, and they were now guilty of crucifying the Lord of glory, whom the Father had now made both Lord and Christ. And then drop down to verse 37. of Peter's listeners, convicted by the Holy Spirit, repented of their sin and were baptized in the name of Jesus, whom they had previously crucified. On this Pentecost... The Lord brought forth his own harvest. 3,000 diverse Jews experienced a personal second exodus being delivered from the slavery, not from Egypt, but the slavery of sin. And they're ushered into genuine spiritual rest through Jesus. For the average Jewish household, observance of the three pilgrim festivals, Pentecost, Passover, the Feast of Booths, was a welcomed obligation do you have memories like this growing up, or maybe you'd go with your parents to a festival or something, and all the sights and sounds even now trigger fond memories, right? You go to some festival and you uh, can hear the crowds, you can hear the music off in the distance, you, you hear people screaming because they're having fun on the rides, you smell the greasy food trucks, right? Uh, it just triggers fond memories. It was like this for families coming to the Jewish festivals. This was a welcomed obligation, as they would come and they would see the cosmopolitan crowds and they would hear the sounds of worshipful singing and they would hear the recitation of familiar scriptures and they'd even smell freshly baked bread at the Feast of Pentecost. And this all mixed together to to form sweet memories in the minds of kids and recalled the same memories in their parents. Because this was such a welcomed obligation, I mean, you could imagine not just men who were obligated to come to the festivals, but they'd bring their wives and they'd bring their children as well. You can imagine how a city like Jerusalem, which had a relatively modest population, probably about 100,000, could swell uh, to 10 times that amount uh, of people during these festivals. Think about the strain that would put upon such a city. Every one of these individuals who came would need lodging. Every one would need provision. You say, well, just go to a hotel. Well, inns of the time were a place of last resort. The conditions were often filthy. Uh, their reputations were depraved. So here's the question. How would throngs of visiting worshipers be appropriately accommodated during these mass events? Hundreds of thousands coming and descending upon a city like Jerusalem. Well, I'm going to suggest to you that they're accommodated in two ways. Number one, through Open hearts and through open homes. Open hearts and through open homes. we're going to talk about this morning is the topic of hospitality. Hospitality literally means a love for strangers. This was a virtue woven into Jewish identity. And as we're going to see, ought to be woven into the identity of every healthy church. This was a virtue woven into Jewish identity from the moment that Israel was conceived as a nation. As early as Exodus chapter 22, and then repeated in Leviticus, the Lord commanded his people this way, Leviticus 19. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. And then he says, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. There's no event in Old Testament history which had a greater impact on Jewish identity than the Exodus. For this reason, the Lord would have his people continually look back to that seminal event to be reminded about who they are and who he is and what he had done for them and what he now expects from them. Included in these lessons from the Exodus is this focus on hospitality. The Jews knew what it was to be strangers. They knew what it was to live among a strange culture in Egypt. They understood what it was to hear and be surrounded by strange languages and receive strange looks, you know, the way some people feel when they walk in the back door of some churches. They knew what it was to be wholly dependent upon the help of merciful strangers. They knew what it was to be susceptible to the hostility of some less than hospitable strangers. Whether it be to return some of the compassion they were shown when they were in Egypt, or whether to contradict some of the hostility they experienced when they were there, the Jews were called upon to show hospitality to strangers. As they contemplated their deliverance from Egypt, they would also be reminded that the Lord Himself brought them out because He has compassion on the sojourner. He reminded them in Deuteronomy chapter 10, It says, the Lord executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, the traveler, the stranger. Therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. The love for strangers or hospitality became a chief virtue among the Jews so that Job, in defending himself, would say this, the sojourner has not lodged in the street. I have opened my doors to the traveler. And Jesus could describe a righteous man in this way. For I was hungry, and you gave me food, and I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. Jerusalem and its surrounding areas could handle the influx of travelers during those three pilgrim festivals because the Jewish people were a people given to hospitality. Remembering their collective history as sojourners, the Lord's mercy towards them, and his subsequent commands to love strangers, they swung open their doors, and they happily welcomed travelers into their lives. The arrival of multitudes was not an imposition. It was not an inconvenience. It was not an unwelcomed invasion, but instead an opportunity to show hospitality befitting a people who were once strangers, but now welcomed into the family of God. And so, on the day of Pentecost, homes were opened. Filled with faithful travelers, hosts would welcome guests, not just to occupy a spare room, but to participate in a shared life. A roof, a bed, provision, protection, and kind fellowship became tangible expressions of love. For a time, guests became friends, and friends were treated like family. Well, what happened after Pentecost? After the festivities were over in uh, AD 33 at this particular Pentecost, it became apparent that something was very different compared to prior feasts. Because when the flood of visitors began to uh, dissipate, some stayed behind. In fact, thousands stayed behind. There were some Jews that heard the preaching of Peter's sermon about Christ, received Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, and they chose to remain there in Jerusalem. These were the Diaspora Jews who were part of the thousands who received Jesus as their Messiah. They'd come to the city to observe Pentecost, and they found their lives turned upside down. And now they chose to stay, not just a few days, but this was extended indefinitely. These new believers joined those 120 disciples and other local Jews who had received Jesus, and they continued together as one community. Perhaps in some situations, hosts and guests alike receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. But in other situations, all of a sudden, you have that devout Jew who is hosting other devout Jews, and their guests now have become followers of Jesus. And those guests now would have to find new accommodations. You say, well, what are you going to do now with thousands of these new followers of Jesus uh, having come to Jerusalem, and now many of them are going to be displaced Turns out that was not really as big a problem as some might think because these newly spirit filled disciples of Jesus embodied the Lord's prized virtue of hospitality. And so look in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is that new community. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. stands as a model of spirit-driven hospitality. These men and women opened their hearts and opened their homes to one another. They worshiped together and prayed together and fellowshiped together and ate together and otherwise shared life together. They even sold possessions in order to provide for one another. They behaved more like one extended family than a collection of diverse strangers. This willingness to open one's heart and home to others would become even more essential when persecution came. When persecution descended upon the church, the believers in Jerusalem would be scattered. They'd be scattered as uh, far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And those fleeing believers would become dependent upon the network of other Jesus followers who were peppered throughout the region. From town to town, Christians would go and they would seek out fellow Christians. Fellow Christians that they knew those strangers would welcome them in as family. It's the same hospitality which traveling preachers and missionaries and the apostles depended upon as they carried the gospel and sometimes fled from persecution. We see a glimpse of this in Paul's letter to Timothy as he commended the widows who had, quote, shown hospitality, had washed the feet of the saints, had cared for the afflicted, and who had devoted themselves to every good work. It's in these ways that hospitality has been essential in facilitating the growth and vitality of, of Christianity from the very first century and to this very day. Like Israel before it, hospitality became a virtue woven into the fabric of the church, and it ought to still be that way. It remains today as an expected characteristic of every healthy church. And so this morning what I'm going to suggest to us as a church is that we must obey and follow the very same pattern, and this community, this community ought to be one where we open our hearts and homes to one another, And even to those you may classify as the stranger. This hospitality in the early church was put to the test. You realize that those first 3,000 who were saved at Pentecost had something in common besides Jesus. They were all Jews. Maybe a proselyte here and there, but they were Jews. This would soon be put to the test as the Lord opened salvation up to the Gentiles, those non-Jews. The animosity between Jews and Gentiles was infamous. The Jews would prefer not even to set foot on Gentile land, let alone step into one's home. There's no love lost from the Gentile toward the Jew either. So that when the Lord opened salvation to the Gentiles some seven years after the birth of the church, the loving hospitality which had come to define the church would again be put to the test the church would be challenged to prove that the hospitality they exercised was not just having friends over, but was genuinely a love for strangers. Thankfully, once it became abundantly clear that the Lord had opened salvation to the Gentiles and Gentiles and Jews alike uh, could be saved, the church did prove the sincerity of its loving hospitality. The Lord made short work of any lingering uh, hostility or prejudice, it made it clear that all believers, whether Jew or Gentile, were welcomed into the family of God. Now, turn to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. When the Lord would impress upon the Jews the need for hospitality, he would have them look back to the Exodus. Remember, you were strangers. The Lord had compassion upon you while you were strangers. So then show love to the stranger. Be hospitable. But what's he going to do for the Gentiles? Pointing them back to the Exodus isn't going to do much good. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, Paul says to the Ephesian believers, that Gentile church, therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Gentiles did not have the same collective history as the Jews. It wouldn't do much good, again, to point them back to the Exodus in in order to encourage them to treat strangers as family. Instead, the Gentiles would have to remember how they were transformed from strangers to members of the family of God, through a much greater exodus. They had been delivered from the slavery of sin by Jesus, so that they who were once strangers and aliens became what? Members of the household of God, part of the family of God. Through salvation, Gentiles were made one with the Jews, and together they were part of God's one spiritual family. And so in that way, God tore down walls of prejudice and hostility. So, as the diversity of the church exploded, the early Christians would have an awesome example, or would become an awesome example of what it meant to pull down those walls of prejudice. Despite their prior hostilities and in defiance of cultural norms, they embraced one another as family. As the Jews remembered that the Lord loved them while they were strangers in Egypt, and as the Gentiles remembered that the Lord loved them while they were strangers of the covenants, and as they both remembered that they had been brought into the family of God through Jesus... They then would extend loving hospitality towards one another so that none would feel like strangers any longer. In this way, the church destroyed prejudice through hospitality. And so, elders and the churches they lead are called to love strangers. Fellowships and dinner parties with people of the same social class class and ethnicity and demographic is not biblical hospitality. Because real hospitality extends love to strangers, makes them friends, treats them like families. And so, it may be obvious at this point, but what you and I generally think about when we think about hospitality is not biblical hospitality. Biblical hospitality is not make sure the house is clean, put out the fine china, and entertain for an hour and a half. That's not biblical hospitality at all. Biblical hospitality looked more like inviting others into one's home to share one's resources, to receive relief, to enjoy relationship, and to be restocked for the next leg of their journey. It was showing love by sharing life. An elder must be hospitable. Paul told Titus this, and Paul told Timothy that in the pastoral epistles. It's there in Titus chapter 1, verse 8, and 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 2, uh, that an elder is to be hospitable. This is important. Yeah, we're going to apply this to everybody, and I'm going to suggest to you that all of us together collectively look at how we have been using our homes and our resources and whether or not we have been open and inviting others into our lives, because that's what the church ought to do. But as far as elders are concerned, although elders are called to focus on the teaching of the Word, a qualified pastor or elder is not an ivory tower academic. He's not one who is friends with his books more than he's friends with his congregants. Instead, elders are men who love people. Elders ought to be men who labor among the sheep. These are men who know the names and faces and personalities and joys and struggles of their people. They know those things because they've opened up their hearts to real relationships. They've opened their homes to facilitate those relationships. This is what it means for an elder elder to be a man given to hospitality. You heard the phrase, a man's home is his castle. What do you think about when you think about a castle? When you think of a castle, does it seem very welcoming? Kind of, you know, the drawbridge and the moat and the, the, those big curtain walls, kind of don't say, come on in. A man's home is his castle. Walls are up to keep people out. That's the way the inhospitable man or woman sees their home. He sees a sharp delineation between his ministry world and his personal world, and he doesn't want them to uh, merge. He ascends to the pulpit, delivers his message, then returns to his study, being sure never to take his work home with him. His home is his castle, and strangers are unwelcome invaders. How do you view your home? What are you going to do after the sermon's done? you Are going to head right out the door, run out to your car, after all, you got to get home, you got to make lunch for your family. What are you going to do? Or are you going to mingle around and try to meet some people? Try to get to know somebody you didn't know before. Maybe even invite somebody over for dinner, invite somebody over for lunch, set up a dinner date throughout the week, uh, see whether or not you can get, get, get together for coffee at some, uh, some real-world connection outside of Sunday. Let me ask you, we've had quite a few newer people coming to the church in the last year or so. What is your vision of health, healthy church life? Come in the back door, sit down, download the information, and leave? Or is this a community of believers who treat one another more like family than a diverse collection of strangers? How are you doing using your home as a blessing and a ministry to others? This is essential for elders because elders are to be an example for the entire congregation. For the qualified elder, his home is a tool which the Lord has given him for ministry. He recognizes that the kingdom is advanced in part through fellowship and the breaking of bread and uh, prayer, according to Ephesians 2, and that his home, along with the homes of every other believer, are the perfect arenas for such things. In this way, he continues the pattern established by the Spirit-filled church in Acts chapter 2. One of the reasons why an elder must have an exemplary home life, remember we talked about that? I mean, he's got to love his wife, he's got to love his children, he's got to manage his household well, and so on. One of the reasons why an elder's home life must be an example is because the Lord expects the elder to invite others into his home. Whereas a sermon is a one-way conversation from the elder to the congregation. Fellowship around a dining room table, that facilitates real relationships, personal connections. It's actually often informal times like that when uh, real progress is made, strides and personal discipleship are made. Because this is an opportunity for the church to witness an exemplary home life. This becomes a powerful combination which both unites the pastor to his people and encourages their spiritual growth. This is an opportunity for individuals in the church to share personal struggles to ask pressing questions, to hear the pastor's heart, to witness his home life. All that works together towards discipleship. So a church ought to be able to witness a pastor's relationship with his wife and children, not only when they're on their best behavior at church, but when they're navigating the day-to-day at home. The hospitable elder will welcome such scrutiny because he views his home as a model for others to imitate, according to Hebrews 13. He understands that His people need example just as much as they need teaching. And this way, hospitality becomes just as much a matter of discipleship as preaching. And you might not view yourself as a teacher. You might not view yourself as a discipler. But understand the impact you can have in the lives of others simply by opening your home. Just by having others over for dinner, having them over for coffee, having them sit down and witness you and uh, your character and your family life and your home life. It's impactful. There's a reason why the Lord has chosen to uh, command and to instruct us to ensure that hospitality is integral to the community of the church. Well, in addition to opening up our homes as an arena of discipleship, the faithful elder will also open his home in order to support the familial culture of the church. Have you ever thought about the metaphors of the church in the New Testament? And how many of them sound a lot like family? The Bible uses the idea of the church being members of a household. The Bible says that if you're a Christian, you've been adopted as a child of God. The Bible says that we all together share one heavenly father. It says that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. New believers are called children. Mature believers are called mothers and fathers in the faith. The church is routinely compared to a family. And... It's expected to behave as a family. The hospitable elder does not remain at arm's length from his people, but instead lives among them as family. He views older men as fathers, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, as Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 5. He understands that God has designed the church to be a spiritual household, and so he endeavors to maintain a familial culture within the community of the church by leading the way through hospitality. You wonder why? Why, when you come to Calvary Baptist Church and uh, you desire membership, do we have a process that's a little bit lengthier than maybe some other churches? One of the reasons why is because we take very seriously God's design for the familial culture of the church. And so one of the things we do when we're bringing people into membership is we say, will you do a Bible study on compassion? Will you do a Bible study on encouragement? Will you do a Bible study on forgiveness? Actually, will you do two Bible studies on forgiveness? Uh, Why? Because we understand what the Bible teaches about church culture. And we want to make sure that when we bring folks in from other churches, uh, that they have that biblical vision so that they can thrive as members of Calvary Baptist Church. This type of family building hospitality is essential in the church because think about those who adopt the faith and then find themselves experiencing rifts or contention among them and their physical family members. Experiencing rejection, ostracization, or even persecution from their physical families. Jesus indicated that following him meant a willingness to endure such possibilities. He said that we had to love him more than father, mother, and brother, and sister. In fact, he said, don't think that I've come to bring peace, but to be a sword. And for some of us, uh, our opponents will be those of our very own families once we receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. Listen to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10. He said in Mark 10, 29. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, Homes and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. They're very interesting. He gave a promise and said that though following Jesus will come with a cost, and some of you may have experienced this cost, especially if you've come from another country. Uh, you've experienced this cost when you receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. Jesus promises you may lose father, mother. You might lose siblings here, but understand that coming to me means that you'll receive a hundredfold. You say, well, how does that work? Is that okay, well, in heaven, in, in the new creation, sure. Uh, the, no, he says, in this life. How does that work? It works when the church fulfills its calling. Jesus fulfills that promise through the community of the church. The childless receives children. The orphan receives mothers and fathers. The estranged, estranged sibling receives an abundance of brothers and sisters. The stranger receives a home. This is all accomplished when the church, following God's design, opens its arms up in loving hospitality. The fulfillment of Jesus' promise depends upon the obedience of the church. And so, elders are are to lead the way in modeling the church, modeling for the church what it means to open up one's heart and one's home. Others, no matter their background, ethnicity, personality, or status, are to be welcomed with open arms. Isn't this amazing? There's some diversity here this morning, isn't there? We love to see the diversity of the church expand because this is a wonderful evidence of the gospel. It's not hard to sit down next to somebody in a fellowship or to talk with somebody who has the exact same background and the exact same race and and so on. But when God puts together a diverse people of all different backgrounds, socioeconomic status, ethnicity, languages even, uh, and we come together and we love one another like brothers and sisters, that's an incredible evidence of the power of the gospel. So... When the church is exercising hospitality, it's used by Jesus to fulfill his promise to give every believer a brand new family. On the other hand, if an elder fails, if the church fails, then we actually fail to see that promise fulfilled in this life. Well, hospitality is a high calling. And I make no mistake about it, I've already stated this, but I'm calling all of us together to check our lives when it comes to how hospital hospitable, hospitable we have been. And this is hard. It's hard because it costs. Let's get this straight. If you're going to open your home, it's going to be costly. Unlike the superficial church, whose talk of love and brotherhood only takes place on Sundays, cheap platitudes spoken when we gather together, the healthy church is made up of men and women who are willing to continually pay the price of hospitality by opening their lives to one another. They're willing to sacrifice in order to show loving hospitality. Consider some of the ways that hospitality costs. First of all, it costs authenticity. Being a hypocrite is exhausting. I'm not talking from personal experience. (laughs) I'm so tired. (laughs) This is so hard. Uh, hospitality costs authenticity you can come here on a sunday and you can put on a a hypocritical face and you can endure that for an hour and a half when you start opening up your home to people you start purposely getting together with people you start opening up your heart to people there's a vulnerability and authenticity that that requires that really doesn't leave any room for hypocrisy hospitality costs authenticity goes far beyond our traditional ideas of a sort of best foot forward special occasion type of hospitality. That type of formality, though certainly appropriate at times, is generally reserved for guests, not family. When family comes over, you generally don't rush around to make sure your house is spotless before they come in, unless they're in-laws. Note to self, if it's not in your notes, you probably shouldn't say it. (laughs) Biblical hospitality would see us invite others into our lives so that they can get a glimpse of our faith, how our faith has transformed our lives, and how we respond to the normal ebb and flow of life. It's an invitation to see us in our roles as parent and spouse and even citizen, church member, elder. It's an invitation for others to get to know us for who we truly are, so that Hebrews thirteen 7, seven speaking of elders that they can can consider the outcome of our way of life and imitate our faith. So hospitality costs authenticity. Next of all, hospitality costs comfort. This is the building of real relationships with a diversity of people. Have you ever had people over that maybe were relatively new to our culture? Maybe they didn't understand all the same customs. Maybe they had their own customs. I've experienced this. I think many of you have probably experienced it. And you realize that's uncomfortable sometimes, not quite knowing how you're supposed to behave or, or not quite understanding what their expectations are. However, biblical hospitality looks at the stranger and says, I'm going to welcome you uh, even uh, in the face of those walls of division that are generally present. And we're going to seek to build real relationships with one another uh, in the face of that diversity. Again, with vulnerability and openness. This might be out of your comfort zone. I suggest to you this morning that maybe you hide behind, oh, I'm just an introvert. Interesting. Because the Holy Spirit would have you be hospitable. And so this may be more of a discipline for some than for others. Nevertheless, the Lord has called us to hospitality. And so this requires us, some of us, to come out of our comfort zones. Hospitality costs authenticity. Hospitality costs comfort. Next of all, hospitality specifically addresses that of loving strangers and invites us to come out of our comfort zones in another way. And that is to ensure that there are no lingering prejudices, no lingering partiality, And so this causes us to look among this group here and say, who could I open my home to that I naturally, in and of myself, would not normally gravitate towards? You might find that your life will be seriously enriched when you begin to step outside of that comfort zone and begin to have men and women into your home and into your life that you normally wouldn't have connected with. I see some of that happening at Calvary Baptist Church, and that's pretty exciting. When I hear about so-and-so went over to so-and-so's home, I'm like, really? That seems like an odd mix. Uh, But that's what the gospel does, right? And so we're called to come out of our comfort zone because we have to be vulnerable. We have to be open. We also have to come out of our comfort zone because we have to bring, tear down walls of partiality and prejudice. Next of all, hospitality also costs because it, frankly, costs resources. Real love sacrifices This might include sacrificing time, sacrificing money, sacrificing other resources. Paul encouraged us to contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality, Romans 12. This was the testimony of the early church. We saw that in Acts chapter 2, where they sold their possessions and provided for one another. According to John, he says that if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Hospitality means I'm not just opening my home. Sometimes I open my pocketbook. So hospitality costs resources. Hospitality is a love for people which is willing to open up ones, again, heart and home and resources for others. It's because hospitality costs that some might refuse to show hospitality. And uh, Peter understands this. So he actually says in 1 Peter 4.9, show hospitality to one another. Without grumbling. Without grumbling. The writer of Hebrews exhorts, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And so this is for all of us. When Paul wrote to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 12, and said, Seek to show hospitality, that was to the entire church. That wasn't just elders. And when he said, Seek to show hospitality, he used a word that means to pursue hospitality. This is not passive It actively pursues others. It looks for opportunities. That's what you're going to do after this service. You're going to seek out one another. You're going to pursue hospitality. Significantly, Paul's instructions regarding hospitality, again, not exclusively for elders, but to the entire church. And so this is a watchful, proactive hospitality. Practically speaking, hospitable believers will use the Sunday morning gathering as an opportunity to not only meet new people, but to arrange real-world connections from which they can begin to develop redemptive relationships. And so they, with their elders, will look across the faces of strangers and acquaintances and actively pursue opportunities to make them family through hospitality. So in conclusion, the qualified elder is not a man who lives apart from his people. He is not an ivory tower academic or a spiritual hermit. He does not shield his personal life from ministry life, as if they're two worlds that are never to collide. Instead, he's a man given to hospitality. Preaching the gospel, teaching others to observe all that Christ commanded is not a job, but it's a lifestyle, and the home is a wonderful tool to carry out that commission. He does not view his home, his time, his money, his stuff selfishly, but as resources to be used by the Lord, and that ought to be the attitude of us all. Further, a qualified elder understands that the Lord has called him to live an exemplary life so that he can welcome people to see him as he is, and even fulfill Hebrews 13 that says, come, imitate, imitate my life. He understands that in order for his example to have an impact, he must engage in meaningful relationships, which require openness and vulnerability. So hospitality is a genuine love for strangers. No impartiality, impart, no, no prejudice. We... Exercise hospitality across all cultural, ethnic, socio socioeconomic strata, regardless of societal expectations or pressures. This type of hospitality knows that the Lord is forming His church from men and women of every tribe and every nation and every language, and our responsibility is to forge one family from such diversity. So lastly, the qualified elder, in obedience to the Lord's command, actively pursues hospitality despite its cost. He's always on the lookout for opportunities to have meaningful impact in the lives of others and to give them access to his own. So the challenge this morning is just that. How have you been doing using your home? Even opening your personal life to others? Christianity is not a Sunday-only religion, not at all. We come here together to hear the Word of God, to be encouraged, to be instructed, to fellowship, to pray, to confess, sure, but so that we can go out there and be impactful and actually carry out the Lord's commission, not only to share the gospel with others, but to teach others to observe all that Christ commanded and to facilitate and to forge the familial community of the church. So how are you doing? The church, in obedience to the Lord's design, follows His example and continually practices hospitality towards one another and towards strangers. Members of the church, new believers, curious visitors, traveling missionaries, should all benefit from the church's hospitality. It's in that way that the familial culture of the church is built and maintained, and is through that hospitality that the future growth of the church, even in the face of increasing host- hostility, and especially in the face of increasing host- hostility, uh, is sustained. So are you given a hospitality? Uh, that's for all of us. If you're here this morning and you think as a man, maybe you are aspiring to the office of elder, are you hosp- hospitable? Uh, you must be. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, and you say, well, I kind of feel like I'm on the outside of all of this. We read earlier a passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, that indicates that we're all strangers to salvation and to the covenants prior to the Lord's intervention. But he's made a way. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, he invites you to change your status from stranger to family. And we as a congregation say to you: no matter, no matter who you are, doesn't matter what your background is, doesn't matter what your status is, doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, doesn't matter what you've done in your past, none of that matters. If you receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, we welcome you as a brother or a sister in the faith. And we look forward to seeing you integrate into the family of Christ. And we look forward to showing loving hospitality to you. And look forward to the Lord developing you so you can show the same to others. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word and for your clear design for the church. We pray that you'll help Calvary Baptist Church to be a hospitable church. Not just opening our homes to those with whom we know we have a lot in common. Those whose personalities and demographics, status, and life all align with our own. But help us to facilitate the familial culture of the church that tears down walls of prejudice and judgment by opening our hearts and homes to those who are different from us. Different status, different ages, different ethnicities, different backgrounds. Uh, I pray that you'd help us use us in fulfillment of Jesus' promise that those who may have lost fathers or brothers. fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters who have faced other division and discord, have lost relationships because of their faith in Jesus. That these would receive an abundance, uh, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, a hundredfold. Help us to be used by you to fulfill that promise by embracing one another. Protect us. If Calvary Baptist Church is on a path of becoming a type of church which doesn't engage in relationships, a cold church, an unwelcoming church, we pray that you'd rebuke us. We pray that you will convict us. We pray that you'll cleanse us. Uh, Lord, we want to be a church that uh, follows your design. And so we pray that you continually keep the heart warm at Calvary. We pray that hearts will be open, that homes will be open, and that you'll facilitate genuine spiritual growth, protect us from a rigid formality, protect us from just being kind of a machine that has all the parts in place and just kind of runs independently. Help us instead to be a warm family. Um, we pray that others will come in and feel that love, uh, and through that love we'll know that we are your disciples. We pray for unbelievers, that they will sense that there's something different about the spiritual family, and that they would understand that that's the product of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray for these also who might be unbelievers this morning, that they'll see their need for Jesus, and that they too could be adopted into the family of God. We thank you for this. Convict us and challenge us for those who have been a little stingy, cold, not opening their homes, not opening up to relationships. We pray that you'll uh, shape them. I pray that they would learn to show loving hospitality to others. For those who have uh, had open homes, who have been welcoming others, who have entered into relationships with others. I pray you'd bless them, uh, bring forth fruit from their every spiritual endeavor, uh, help them to be impactful in the lives of others. And we pray that you just continue this work, uh, continue to forge and shape the culture of Calvary Baptist Church. We thank you for all of this. And uh, we know that this is only possible because of Jesus and the work that he's accomplished on the cross and the work that he continues to do in us through his spirit. And uh, so Lord, we thank you immensely for this. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.